Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, John McGarrian, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Carolina Lopez-Ruiz about her new book, Phoenicians and the Making of the Mediterranean, published by Harvard University Press in 2021. Uh, Welcome to the show, Carolina. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me over. Of course. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, your background. Okay. <laughs> well, I, so I, I work at Ohio State University in the classics department. Um, let's see about my background. I trained as a classicist uh, at first back in Spain. Um, and then I did a PhD on a program at the University of Chicago, which was called uh, Committee on the Ancient Mediterranean World. So basically, while I was doing classics already as an undergrad, I was fascinated by the Near East and, you know, I was trying to find ways to integrate the classical world and the Near Eastern world. And I started studying Hebrew and Arabic and, you know, I went to Israel for a year and did some archaeology and a little bit all over the place. And this program in Chicago for my PhD really kind of gave me the opportunity to put it together. So I started off, yeah, more as a text person. I'm still, I still am, <laughs> but working on mythology, comparative mythology, Northwest Semitic, you know, text traditions and Greek traditions and all that. And that kind of led me into trying to find uh, ways of understanding the historical and cultural context for those um, uh, those those uh, overlaps, right, and and exchanges that we see in mythology and in texts. So I, I wandered out and out <laughs> into the world of archaeology and ancient history um, and focused on the Phoenicians as a kind of a thread that really seemed to explain to me a lot of what's happening um, in that period of the, the archaic period. That's something <laughs> to say. <laughs> but let me know if you need more. <laughs> No, no, no. That's absolutely perfect. Um, okay. So, you know, piggybacking off of that a little bit, if we're, you know, dive right into the book. Um, one of the things that was most salient in the book to me is how contested all of the aspects of this historiography um, has been. And mm-hmm. in my reading, that even includes the notion of the Phoenicians themselves. So can you introduce the Phoenicians um, to the listeners? Yeah, contested is the word, <laughs> yes. So the Phoenicians are these uh, ancient people that emerge, let's say, as a, as a distinct group uh, in the first early fir- first millennium BC. So sort of around the same time that the Israelites, for instance, are right, kind of um, carving their, their place in the Levant. The Phoenicians were have a similar background of Canaanite culture in the, in the Near East, uh, and uh, they had city-states, independent cities. 
along the coast of what is today Lebanon, mostly the, that coastal strip, um, and a little bit in northern Israel and, and north Syria. So spilling out of national modern uh, national borders. So they are, yeah, they are these Canaanites, right, that worship other gods like Baal and Ashtar and, and so on. And uh, they set out, you know, trading networks very early on in the 10th, 9th century especially and started settling around the Mediterranean, most famously in Carthage, but in many other places, in Cyprus, on, in, on Sardinia, on Sicily, southern Spain, North Africa. So they're kind of all over the place. And the, the Hebrew Bible talks about them and the ancient Greeks talk about them. Homer does since, since, so since the very first um, Greek testimonies. So they are kind of present all over the place, but uh, because of historical um, events and the circumstances, um, we have lost most of their uh, testimonies in terms of literature or, or self-narratives, right? Unlike for the Greeks or for the Israelites. So that is part of the problem that, that you are alluding to, that we don't know what they thought of themselves in the earlier periods, at least. Only in very later times we have some Roman period authors talking about Phoenician stuff as, as, as heirs of this tradition. But, you know, we don't have a Phoenician Homer or, you know, or a, or a, a Torah or anything like that. So we have inscriptions and we have archaeology and a, a lot of testimonies from others who talk about them. Hence the issue, right? Like who were they really? Were they really a, like a coherent group? Did they think of themselves as an ethnic group? And that is what is kind of uh, contested, yeah. It's just kind of an irony for the people who like invented the alphabet to have right? left <laughs> such a small written trace. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But talking about the alphabet, they, they did leave behind thousands and thousands of inscriptions. I think the number right now on record is over 10,000 Phoenician inscriptions that are attested, documented. There, there are many more under the, the ground for sure. Um, so they wrote <laughs> and, and they wrote a lot, but inscriptions are very limited in what they, you know, what they tell us because if they're funerary or votive inscriptions, they're very um, formulaic, short, they're not narratives. So we have some inscriptions that are more narrative, some royal inscriptions that tell what the king did and the king of Biblos or the king of Sidon. We have a number of those which are very interesting, but we don't have literature except what Greeks and Romans convey as maybe citing sometimes if you're lucky or paraphrasing or drawing on Phoenician and Carthaginian sources. Um, so we know they had literature. We know they wrote. I mean, some people may say that, well, we don't really know. But I mean, they are mentioned in many sources as authors. And, and there are you know famous works by Carthaginians like... Uh, this famous treatise on agriculture by Mago, the Carthaginian, and, and just to mention one. But yeah, but it is a problem because they, you know, their legacy, written legacy of that sort didn't survive. What survives are inscriptions mostly. Hmm. Yeah. So you argue in the book that the Phoenicians have been sort of done a disservice by disciplinary divides. Can you unpack mm -hmm. their kind of awkward position in modern scholarship? Yeah, yeah, that's a, so that's the other big problem that they are, they kind of fall between the cracks, as it were, or of several disciplines. So classicists talk about Phoenicians when they, you know, when they come across them in Herodotus or Homer or historians, classical historians, Roman historians study the Punic Wars. So they talk about Phoenicians, in this case, Carthaginians, which are Phoenicians from Carthage, right? So they become very central when it comes to the Punic Wars or when it comes to the Persian Navy, which was formed by Phoenicians. And Herodotus talks about that and stuff like that. Or, 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 or their study, not a study necessarily, but yeah, like they're interesting for the Hebrew Bible because they are mentioned uh, in, in biblical sources. So they, they are kind of peripheral, <laughs> a little bit marginal to, to several disciplines. But not so many people, though there are, there is a good number and it's growing, but not so many people um, really put them at the center of their discipline just 
on their own terms as a as a subject. But I think that's changing as I hope. I mean, there is more interest in them. Um, and then the one area where they are more central is for archaeologists who dig in areas where you know they are digging Phoenician sites. Then okay, there is a lot of archaeology that does center on Phoenician stuff. But in terms of disciplines, yeah, even there, what is a Phoenician archaeology? It's like Iron Age archaeology, or it's on the periphery of classical archaeology. It's not that clear either. Yeah. Hmm. So. I think along a similar vein, you know, I, uh, with disciplinary divides, the their position also, as elaborated in the book, really is emblematic of the imprint of imperialism over the last 200 years. So could you discuss a little bit about how the reception and uh, study of the Phoenicians has been tied up with first, you know, imperialism, imperialist attitudes, and then moving more towards the present, things like post-colonialism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you you kind of summarize it right there in a sense. It's There are several things going on um, in terms of... Um, let's say, European imperialism. I mean, again, there are several layers. One is that, um, as I say in the book, and, you know, others have said this, the, Phoenician, the main Phoenician lands, let's say, areas where they where they thrived, let's say, their cities, their main cities thrived for very long, that is on Lebanon and uh, Tunisia, right? For instance, they are, they are, there are areas that have been highly contested by European powers, that they, they're, you know, they are taking off in terms of having their own archaeology, but the archaeology in these areas has been dominated by European schools or European interventions. And in a sense, these views of European 19th, 20th century scholars shape what what kind of archaeology is interesting, which civilization are we looking for? So it's, as we might expect, they would give prominence to Roman remains, Greek, Hellenistic, and, you know, uh, Greek remains and, um, and or, or later Islamic, right? Islamic uh, remains, but the Phoenicians of the Iron Age are not particularly a, a traditional, you know, priority in that kind of colonial archaeology. And then, of course, they have become better studied, but uh, in terms of archaeology. But also, I think what you're hinting at too that I talk about in the in, in the book is that. And again, others have been pointing out is that um, you know there is a a kind of inertia of considering them an opposition, almost like um, um, the well, the antagonist of Rome, per excellence, right? But also as as a Semitic people, they they don't represent the classical tradition, which has been. Um, Adopted by you know by by a Europe European and Anglo uh, culture as the the cradle of their own civilization. You know what I mean. So so there are a lot, there is a certain bias towards the Phoenicians that is paired with that those ideas of Western and Eastern, you know, uh, Orientalist ideas and so on can can still be found in in more traditional scholarship. Of course, more modern scholarship tries to really get away from that. Because it's very ironic, right? They are they were part of the classical world. In, they were interacting with Greeks and Romans, and um, they were not part, particularly that different from from them. They are the near near Easterners that are more present in the classical world, and yet they're seen as this other type of civilization. So a lot of focus on things like child sacrifice. Did they do it or not? You know, that whole debate has in itself. Uh, the the stain of orientalism you know so there is a lot going on um what am i missing um post-colonial archaeology so i'll try to be brief but that is the area where the phoenician let's say cultural legacy and agency has been um has received more attention because they are they settle in all these areas like Sardinia, Sicily, Iberia. So there is a lot of archaeology in, in these areas that explores this interaction between Phoenicians and local and local groups. And even if you want to emphasize the local groups agency from a post-colonial perspective, right? 
it's not all east to west it's not all ex-oriental looks and all that but still you are bringing up what are the Phoenicians doing there and you're bringing up uh, to light uh, this Phoenician legacy as well even if from a post-colonial perspective where you know we try to get away from the idea that they they do everything and the locals are passive recipients and that kind of thing. So in Western archaeology, Western Mediterranean archaeology, there has been a lot of interest in, in the Phoenicians in that context. Okay, that was way too long. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It was, it was perfect. And it like segues into multiple of my questions. So it works perfectly. I mean, I have to choose which one to go with. And I think I'll uh, go with the most immediate one, which is, um, y- you know, I think you can tell me if you disagree, but broadly speaking, you do adopt a post-colonial framework. But one area where you maybe push back a little bit is that in a certain sense, the you know post-colonial narrative puts so much emphasis on networks and local reception um, and indigeneity that uh, at least as I read what you were saying, it kind of has the unintentional effect of removing the Phoenicians almost completely as agents in the making of this pan-Mediterranean network. So um, I guess that's a statement, but more maybe you can tell if I have it right and then elaborate on it, um, if I'm right or if I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I think you're, yeah, I'm, I see you read my book very carefully. <laughs> yes, yeah, you got it. And I tried to yeah, one of the goals of the book is precisely to 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 present these sorts of tensions, right, between trends, disciplines, even even within new trends like Mediterranean studies, post-colonial uh, study of of ancient colonization, and all these things. Even within those trends that are much more aware of the complexities of interaction, I try to point out that even there, the Phoenicians can be sidelined in a way that perpetuates this kind of um, yeah marginalization it doesn't all it's not always like that but it's true that there is some line of um of this um pan-mediterranean type of study or 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 of post-colonial study that still kind of flies over them right yes there are the settlements but they put the emphasis in other places and that has its value i'm not i mean you know, i've learned i learned a lot from from it too, but my narrative is uh, to try to see how you know we can uh, understand what the Phoenicians were doing, like give them more historical agency as 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 a group, as as as, as you know whether independent city states, sometimes driven by you know their own in- networks. Um, try to understand better what they're doing and also give them a bit more importance in the grand Mediterranean narrative because yeah we go from one extreme to the to the other like these local peoples of course they're more marginalized in ancient history say Iberian like Cartesians the the archaic period uh, Iberians of the Iberians of the southern um, peninsula or let's say the local Sardinians of the Iron Age, or or not to mention um, North African groups that interact with the Carthaginians. They, they have less of a narrative of their own. They ha- you know they are more marginalized. So it's great to do this and take try to take their position, but some scholars just uh, want to emphasize so much that it's like the Phoenicians, yeah. Didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> anyway, I'm exaggerating, uh, but yeah, I, but there is a certain tension, you know, even within these uh, these trends, and that's what I was trying to to reflect. We can learn from every perspective, you know. After all, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so another thing that you alluded to in some of your answers is Orientalism, um, and I think probably the concept that's at the heart of the book for at least for somebody that hasn't, you know, studied Phoenicians very much before. And so it's the sort of operative principle that's going on here is um, orientalizing, which is distinct from orientalism. So can you give the listeners a snapshot of the orientalizing phenomenon in this period? Yeah. So that was the the other goal was to, uh, yeah, try to explain this phenomenon uh, through the thread of the Phoenicians uh, and the interaction between Phoenicians and locals. So the orientalizing concept was 
um, coined, let's say the term was coined early in, in by art historians who were discovering artifacts in especially in Etruscan tombs in southern Italy or in central Italy, sometimes in Cyprus, I mean, in Greece. But this early 19th century archaeology even, when they found these artifacts that were not in the Near East, they were found outside, say, yeah, in Italy or in Greece, but they had clearly Near Eastern art, you know, features of Near Eastern art in them, but they didn't seem to be straight out like Assyrian artifacts or Egyptian artifacts, they had this blend, which early on the a lot of these art historians identified as having to do with Phoenician craftsmanship because it's, you know, the kind of stuff that the ancients were saying the Phoenicians made, like metal bowls and carved ivories and these sorts of things. So anyway, this, this term became kind of a catch-all term a little bit for this sort of local versions of um, of Near Eastern art or um, it's a bit confusing. Sometimes it will be applied to Near Eastern artifacts found outside of the Near East. But it's basically this art from the 8th and 7th centuries BC mostly. Um, and in each area it, it has its own internal terms. Like in Greece, if people are familiar with Greek art, um, orientalizing pottery is proto-Corinthian pottery. So from the seventh century, that has it's this pottery de- decorated with sphinxes and hybrid creatures and little rosettes. So those sorts of icon, right? That, that kind of iconography is near Easterny, but made in a particular style that is um, idiosyncratic of Greek culture, right? So it's these adaptations. And what I try to show is that um, though we cannot always know where the inspiration or, you know, or, or the craftsmanship of all this art in all these places came from, what I try to, to make more consistent is to show that, um, that in all the areas where this type of art develops, there is a certain consistency. They all use certain art types of artifacts. They adopt certain stuff. They they develop imagery that is that appears in Phoenician art a lot, like these sphinxes, to give an example that, that I use a lot. So that in all these areas, the Phoenicians are interacting with these groups, be it in, in Greece, in Etruria, in Iberia, um, in on Cyprus, right? So... You know, the whole debate is, you know, can really benefit from trying to integrate the Phoenicians more in this uh, puzzle of of this orientalizing art. And people hate the term because it has orient in it, and that's just wrong. (laughs) What is the orient? It's such an old-fashioned term. It's orientalistic and all that. But really, in the end, it's the term we're stuck with because it's in, in, in scholarship since you know, the 19th century, and uh, nobody has been able to successfully <laughs> replace it by another one. Um, but yeah, I argue that the Phoenicians and their interactions with local groups has everything to do with this development of this sort of art, sort of an international new image that um, that the Phoenicians kind of uh, scatter in the Mediterranean and, and they, they kind of sell it to local elites and local groups that want to seem more sophisticated, more near Easterny, <laughs> uh, because that is prestigious at the time. That's kind of in a natural, yeah, how I see it. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally. And that comes through. And one of the things that I like about the book, and that seems obviously true, is that the Phoenicians themselves are not static, especially when you consider that this is a really big uh, network of people constantly moving, interacting with other cultures, and it's also quite a long period of time. Um, and so that's both interesting, and it seems, based on the reading, that it can be somewhat troubling um, for scholars. Uh, and one thing that it appears to me has caused some consternation is um, parsing the items and cultures that are what you would call Egyptianizing versus Phoenicianizing precisely because 
Venetians themselves bore the stamp of multiple waves of cultural influence, um, again, mm -hmm. at least as I read it. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, um, yeah, the way that the Phoenicians themselves uh, were impacted by the different groups that they um, came in contact with, and then in turn kind of repackaged that in their own, mm -hmm. um, you know, hybrid brand. Yeah, exactly. I, I like very much how you how you how you put it. They 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 make their own synthesis through the through through the centuries of uh, Near Eastern art that is um, very heavily influenced by Egyptian art, and that is not just art. It's that their 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 religious world, the way in which they portray their gods, the symbols they had, they are very intertwined with with Egyptian iconography and and uh, and religion in a way right so they might represent their goddess Ashtarte in a in a shape that looks exactly like Isis and they do that and you know so mm. um and they use um, you know the symbols of the the solar disk of Horus as you know and and sphinxes so what I try to show is that for instance the the sphinx that the that you see all over the Mediterranean is the Egyptian type of sphinx. It is winged and it is usually feminine and it is connected to thrones and to kind of imagery of royalty. So the sphinx is, of course, mostly associated for us, for the general public with Egypt. And, you know, we have the, the idea of the Egyptian sphinx and there is some of that in the, the Phoenician sphinx, but they are the ones who make their own type, right? And they export it, as you said. So like that with many other features of their art uh, because they you know these cities Sidon, Byblos, Tyre they have been in contact with Egypt um, and with very tight economic and political and uh, you know and cultural ties since the third millennium BC and, and especially during the Bronze Age in the second millennium right so we're talking about centuries and at the same time they have by the first millennium, they also synthesize, uh, you know, features that can be seen as Assyrian-looking or or North Syrian, um, in and you see that in their ivories, in some of the depictions of goddesses and so on. So it is really this blend. But people who look at, at Phoenician art or for for very long and a lot of it, <laughs> there is a certain consistency, as I said, right? That you have to be used to it, and then what you see is Phoenician art not an eclectic, it is eclectic, but what is eclectic? Everything is eclectic, right, in our culture too. But when you see enough of it and, and, and a type of eclecticism uh, takes some coherent form of sorts, it becomes a new thing, right? You know what I mean? So our historians get very hung up on, and archaeologists, you know, everybody, you know, it's, it's normal, you know, we get very hung up on origins, like what is, you know, this type of thing leans this way and this other one leans this, leans this other way. But that uh, prevents us from seeing it as Phoenician, which is what it is. So it's basically a type of Canaanite art. You see this synth synthesis already in, in the Bronze Age in a place like Ugarit in northern Syria um, or the Canaanite cities that the Israelites uh, take over, right? like Megiddo, Hatsor. The art that was there already shows uh, a lot of this Near Eastern style that 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 then the Phoenicians are the ones who kind of um, take it, you know, through to the next century because they, you know, they they remain really kind of unchanged in a way, and then they they export it in their luxury arts. So it's even an earlier Canaanite thing. So yeah, so there is a lot of consistency there. And if you look at gravestones like uh, Stelae from Sardinia in the 5th century BC or 4th century BC, they have these same symbols, the Horus disc and the Ashtar type of goddess and the half moon and all the, you know, and the sphinxes. They, it's really very consistent through the ages. So that's something I try to highlight um, in the book, yeah. Yeah, and so the, the book basically does a tour through the Mediterranean. And one of the things that I like is that it treats with great sensitivity, various different areas that are reflective of the varying degrees of interaction or hybridization, um, you know, in Orient 
orientalization that uh, happen. And so it pays a lot of attention to local context. So I'll ask you about, you know, maybe two that I think are illustrative. So it's starting on um, all the way in the West in Iberia, where the Phoenicians, uh, you know, establish contacts and, and networks far earlier than the Greeks. Um, we have the example of Huelva. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, sort of similarly, I think with some of the North African areas, if I read it right, you know, these are interesting examples of maybe what you could call like coexistence without too much um, orientalizing. Mm-hmm. So in, in, yeah, in Huelva, has produced this fascinating um, stash of, of material and it's, it's still pro- producing more that shows that there was very early interaction between Phoenicians and local uh, local indigenous groups um, before we even had Phoenician colonies. Like the big Phoenician colony was established in Gadir, what is Cadiz today, right? Um, a little bit farther east on the Atlantic coast, but not in Huelva. In Huelva, you have, well, it, it's it's difficult because this, the materials are under the city, so we are only talking about kind of emergency excavations, but there is a lot of materials that show this, this sort of interaction without, apparently without a colony, right? So what they were doing there was to, you know, already to trade in metals with the locals and so on and to establish a connection that eventually allowed them, the Phoenicians, to, to settle somewhere else. <laughs> but... But yeah, it's a great point to study that there is orientalization in terms that these local groups um, at some point start burying themselves in a more more luxurious way and incorporating Phoenician ivories and um, metal objects and and things that they are picking up um, from the Phoenician world, but they do it in their own way. It's they're not, it seems like colonized, let's say, right? Whereas in North Africa, since you mentioned North, it's a different picture. You get Carthage and other settlements, but and and they Carthage thrives and you know and 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 sort of spreads its influence. But there isn't a lot of evidence of local interaction of the same way. Like there is, you don't see an orientalizing art like indigenous art emerging that is rich, like with their own styles of metalwork that incorporate these Near Eastern elements. and But rather you have Phoenician stuff and then whatever, there are some sites uh, where maybe you can trace indigenous peoples, but it doesn't seem like the local elites were that interested in, in creating their own urban culture with their own, you know, uh, aesthetics. But again, maybe we don't know because there has been less archaeology of that period uh, looking for these indigenous groups, so it, you know, it may not be that that clear. But yeah, though, you know, there is a range of interactions which may produce orientalizing art, like in in the area of of southern Spain, independently even of colonies, and that is, that is very important. And then you have the Phoenician colonies, including in Gadir and other places. And right. then you have, you know, so and in other places you have colonies and you don't have orientalizing art necessarily, <laughs> right? So it is. Um, the range is very large. In Greece, is the opposite. You don't have Phoenician colonies, but you have a, a huge, um, like, um, boom of orientalizing art in Greek style. But you have interaction with Phoenicians that is documented mm. in, in Crete, in Attica, in, the, in the, on the islands. I mean, it is you know fairly well documented, but without colonies. Why? We don't know. They the Greeks didn't let them. I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, one area or example case study that I found really interesting was Sardinia, um, mm. where you have like on the one hand really strong orientalization, but you also have a largely intact indigenous landscape that is sort of selectively adopting like Levantine cultural signifiers. Um, can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about you know the the case study of Sardinia? Yeah, exactly. There, there's really on, ongoing, uh, great ongoing work there. Um, my colleague Peter Van Dommelen and, and and others. So they're showing that yeah, you have you have the whole range in Sardinia. You have 
Phoenician colonies pretty early on, like settlements where you can see, you know, there is like a Phoenician cemetery and, you know, and structures. So it's a Phoenician site, but then a lot of inscriptions and so on. But then you have local uh, settlements. Um, you have a very, very long, like kind of deep indigenous culture that engages with uh, this landscape um, of the Nurage, right? These megalithic constructions that go back to the Bronze Age, but that the local groups are reusing during the Iron Age and kind of they're clustering around them. And even in these sites, which are usually farther inland and more indigenous, there you can also uh, archaeologically trace the interaction between Phoenicians and locals by, you know, the presence of... um, Phoenician pottery, and then they, you know, then you have local forms of pottery that are kind of influenced by the Phoenician ones, but but locally made, and a whole hybrid scenario, right? Um, um, that is like culturally hybrid scenario that is really fascinating. So you have the whole range there, yeah. Yeah, um, <clears throat> you know, with with orientalizing, as I read it, a lot of it entails the activities of kind of local elites trying to participate in a Mediterranean kind of uh, shared culture for various economic and social um, signifiers. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also, you know, other parts of Phoenicianizing that you document. And um, just to give two examples, just so, you know, we, I, I was curious, I guess, about how, you know, these different kinds of things can coexist and what the implications of that might mean. So, you know, to me, it seems like the reasons for adopting um, particular sets of imagery in a funerary kit to signal elite participation in in that Mediterranean, you know, intercultural milieu might be really different than the more popular local embrace of a Phoenician cult, um, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm just wondering, like, you know, you could have both of those a- and you document it, right, like in the same place happening at the same time. And I wonder if there are different reasons behind each of those, even though it's sort of overall part of the same phenomenon. That's a very good question. I might have to write another book for that one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, so, like, are you are you thinking about the? I mean, the way you framed it is interesting. I'm not sure that I, that yeah, that I had um, articulated it that way. But it's a, yeah, like, are you thinking, for instance, of the the local manifestations of the cult of Ashtart, right? Yes, or, exactly. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, but you're right that those may be sort of different levels because when symbology and, you know, an adaptation of a god, I mean, uh, um, reaches that point where it seems like, um, it seems like there is a, you know, a, a more popular acceptance, then it's not a right. matter of, of, uh, just showing off, you know, a display of, uh, showing off luxury goods vis-a-vis your neighbors who maybe don't have that relationship with the Phoenicians and you're showing off that you're more, you're better connected than them and stuff like that, which which seems to happen um, a lot. But it's true that in some places, like I, I would say in Sardinia, uh, but in Sicily, in southern Spain, you do have, there is a point where there is enough, enough, uh, I think enough signs that, that, that some of these cults are developed locally and are accepted locally. And then you have like... Uh, uh, for instance, in Ibiza, a little, a little bit later on, you have a whole-fledged Punic culture with local overtones where you have terracotta figurines in, on Cyprus too. There's a lot of terracotta, you know, with orientalizing-style terracottas. So to the degree that that shows an adoption of this, not only the, the figures, but probably some of the ideology or the symbology, then you can talk about a popular... popular um, hybridization, let's say, of, of culture and religion at a popular level, because terracottas are not, you know, not luxury um, items. They're, you know, they're made, they're, they're kind of the, the, the poorer <laughs> register of, of right. uh, religion, but they are super important to precisely as expression of, of uh, popular beliefs. So I think that deserves um, a better study, even like uh, that sort of, that possible contrast or, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, um, 
you know, there's a lot of other case studies in the book. Um, and uh, But in the interest of time, we're going to have to elide some of them, even though that's a huge yeah. disservice. Um, readers, listeners will just have to read the book. <laughs> um, yeah. But I cannot, I can't skip over the, the alphabet um, because, you know, that's yeah. the heritage that I think if people are familiar with anything, you know, people know that the alphabet has Phoenician roots. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a super open-ended question, but, um, <laughs> you know, what would you say to listeners are some of the important, you know, things about the way the Phoenician alphabet developed and how it was received yeah. in, you know, different areas? Yeah, it's a huge topic. I, I love that topic. I, yeah, I, and I, I explain much more in the book and, I'm better than here, but um, but let's let's say that one important thing that maybe people don't know in general is that the Phoenicians did not so much invent the alphabet as they systematized again their own version. Especially uh, in the city of Byblos, it, it it starts being used around the 10th century BC, uh, the Phoenician alphabet, and then. Uh, the city of Tyre, it seems like the alphabet they're using, which is the same, but they kind of um, systematize it more and they they are the ones who kind of export it, right? But the Canaanites earlier on have, have developed alphabetic writing. So it's an invention of Canaanites more at large. We don't know who exactly, but there are, there are some proto-versions of <laughs> alphabetic writing um, called proto-Canaanite or proto-Sinaitic, you know, it gets complicated. But at Ugarit in the 13th century, they are using alphabetic script in cuneiform. So that's kind of a, a grandfather of the Phoenician alphabet. Then that is the, the, the next, the other thing is then that the reason we have it in Greece and then through Greek, uh, the Etruscans adopted, through the Etruscans, the Romans adopted, and then we adopted. The reason we have it is precisely because the Phoenicians are expanding these commercial and colonial networks in the 8th century, before really, but let's say in the 8th century is when they're more present in many places, and that's when the the alphabet gets picked up by the the Greeks and also by Iberians in the 7th century. So, um, but not everybody does it, so that's one thing that it, I think that, that well, the alphabet is an orientalizing product by itself in terms that it is one of these um, technologies or commodities or you know cultural items that get adopted by certain groups who have a use for it, right? Have a desire for it, have um, are part of these uh, high functioning networks, commercial networks, and they they so it becomes useful. Other groups don't bother. You know, so it is not a universal thing, and it's also not an inertia that it just happens by because it's very easy or because it's just kind of by chance. No, I think the Phoenician alphabet had a, a prestige, also even within the Levant. So another thing I stress is that, yeah, that the, there is a reason why the it's the Phoenician alphabet and not I don't know these groups don't adopt some other type of writing. Uh, so the Israelites also adopted, and the Arameans and the Moabites, right? All the groups around the Phoenicians. So they are looking up to these Phoenician cities as, um, you know, as, uh, as as models in a way for this sort of state that has writing and, and has certain institutions and art, and they do become within the Levant um, kind of a, a, a model or an inspiration and, and, and then outside as well. They, they, they are the, the ones who are um, providing this um, kind of this model, including writing. So it is not by chance or it is not, you know, because it's less difficult than Akkadian cuneiform. Of, yes, I think it is more, it is easier. <laughs> I'm kind of glad that they adopted the Asian <laughs> alphabet and not the, the, the Akkadian uh, syllabary. But, but, um, but it's good to get away out of that kind of narrative of the inertia or it's just simpler. I think it had a, a prestige uh, as well in its own in its own right. And it is an alphabet. It is not a syllabary. A syllabary is what the Mycenaeans had or what the Sumerians had or what the Akkadians had. Uh, the alpha, it is an alphabet, <laughs> even if it's a consonantal uh, alphabet as all Semitic languages, right? They don't write um, short vowels. But 
there is some misconceptions uh, around mm. that call it a, a syllabary, and that's something that kind of uh, drives me a little bit nuts. But, <laughs> so I think I, yeah, I think I've given a few clues if people are interested to to read more, and the, and I give more bibliography to you know to good studies in in the book. Yeah, definitely. And it also strikes me that, you know, you mentioned the alphabet of the Phoenicians having prestige and stuff, you know, I mean, some of that. So you, I guess you conclude the book with an examination of the Phoenicians in Phoenicia and in, you know, in the the, uh, Mm -hmm. Levantine regions. Um, And one of the things that's most remarkable about them and is clearly not coincidental to this story is that they are one of the few cultures that emerge relatively unscathed from the late Bronze Age collapse. Um, And -hmm. I found that very intriguing. So could you, um, A, I guess for listeners who don't know exactly what that is, maybe just give a snapshot of that and then also um, hypothesize some reasons for why they were able to you know, have a pretty good go of it while older, you know, very well-resourced August empires just collapsed quite precipitously? Well, if I could answer that like successfully, I would, you know, <laughs> I would write the most best-selling book because it's really one of those big mysteries of, mysteries of ancient history. As, as you said, the Bronze Age collapsed, the end of the Bronze Age. So around the, around 1200, you know, uh, BC, all these there's there are all these um, crises, and there is a system collapse. Sort of the Mycenaean palaces in Greece are are burned and and you know destroyed and abandoned. There are cities in in the throughout the Levant, including Israel and northern Syria, including Ugarit that I mentioned. They are destroyed and abandoned. Um, Egypt suffers these uh, invasions by the so-called Sea peoples or some people from the sea that they mention, and that's a whole other other field of um, speculation. Who those are? Is this coordinated or not? Um, the Hittite capital also collapses, and there are some there is some correspondence between kings. We have tablets that talk about you know from the Hittite palace and from Ugarit that talk about these attacks from the sea that they are suffering, and you know, and they're asking for help. So there is. It's very hard to know what's going on, but there are groups of people possibly coming from the Aegean, but we don't know from where exactly. Maybe uh, some sort of coalition. Maybe they are more like migrants and or both migrants and military, obviously, because they are they are causing you know uh, battles. You know, they're, they're destroying cities. So anyway, there is this collapse and and this all these empires, the Hittite, the Egyptian, the Canaanite cities, the Mycenaean world, they seem to have been so connected economically as well and, and politically in a way that, that this caused a whole era change, right? The Bronze Age, the end of the Bronze Age. And out of the rubble of this, <laughs> this crisis emerged these new kingdoms, including the, you know, and, and nations and groups, including the Israelites the, and the Aramean kingdoms and the Phoenicians. But the Phoenician cities, as you said, and, and I just go by what archaeologists say, uh, they were they never collapsed. Like some of them in the north suffers some a little bit of destruction, perhaps, but Tyre and the ones in the south didn't, and they thrive like very fast, right? So they they either they either were strong enough to you know to somehow survive this. Maybe they were already super good at negotiating with others, and maybe because they were in empires, maybe they managed to, again, to, 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 to you know, to get something out of it and to stay out of the main conflict. Who knows? It, it looks very weird, uh, but in any case, they did benefit from the power vacuum that followed, and they, you know, and that is in part why we think that. Tyre, especially according to biblical sources, but also from archaeology, it seems like Tyre picks up and the baton of the Canaanite splendor that had been, and and they kind of emerge as as this cultural and economic force, and they set up colonies and look for metals in the Atlantic and all over, you know, as far as Spain. Who can do that? So they, it's kind of it is a big unanswered question, like how they managed to do this. Um, and what is, it's kind of a vicious circle, right? Like, um, were they already so prosperous that they could um, kind of 
negotiate, you know, an advantage position with these invaders or I don't know, or was it for some other reason? But in in any case, they 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 raised to to the top. They, I think, one key thing is their independence. Like they had been fairly independent as, as city states, and the Assyrians also treated them kind of in an exceptional way, like with a lot of more respect than they treated others. Perhaps because they depended they they depended on them to bring resources from the Mediterranean because they're such good sailors and. So they seem to have always had this advantage in in that maritime out you know uh, outgoing uh, seafaring uh, capacity that they had and that seems to have put them at an advantage but I I don't know that that is the reason why why they survive and um, who knows <laughs> yeah, and so I guess to conclude things you know what do you think we can learn today from studying the Phoenicians? Well, I I hope that we can just um, make people more curious uh, about them and know that there is much more to them, as it usually happens, than, you know, than the few things that go around the, the, general, opi- the general opinion, um, that there, there are more sources than, than most people think. There is a lot more archaeology, that we are learning a lot about them through archaeology, and that it is worth looking at other big actors in the Mediterranean, right? Besides the Greeks and the Romans, that we you know hear about more in 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 college, even in cl- in classes, in books. So it is worth looking at these other narratives, let's say, or these other actors to to form other narratives, rather, right? And with the Phoenicians, would go also the Sardinians and all these other Iron Age groups that are even more uh, unknown. So just to be more curious about the ancient Mediterranean from different perspectives. Well, fantastic. The book is Phoenicians and the Making of the Mediterranean. Buy it. It's an excellent read. Um, Carolina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Jonathan.